The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. And uh, yeah, one guy in here likes his Bible. Good. Uh, Yeah, we're going to Psalms 1. So here's what we're going to do. We are starting a five-week series, and we are going to study together the first five Psalms. Uh, And we'll probably revisit this series in the future, and we'll take this book bit by bit, uh, as there are 150 Psalms in total. And I think if we just ran straight through it, uh, we may run out of steam at some point. So we'll, we'll come back to this every once in a while, take a chunk of the book of Psalms, and uh, see what it is the Lord would say to us from that. I'm really excited about it. Uh, the book of Psalms is the largest collection of ancient lyrical poetry in existence. I'm not sure if you knew that. This collection of poems and songs, is, it's called Psalms, based on the Greek word psalmos, which basically means a composition sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments. The Hebrew title for the same collection of poetry can be summed up in the word praises. And this really makes sense because as you read through the Psalms, uh, even the ones that include brutal honesty about trials and struggles that people are going through, for the most part, even those ones, they're often called Psalms of Lament, even those end up in affirming God's sovereignty and goodness. Even when somebody's pouring out their heart saying, I'm struggling, God, I don't feel you near me. Anybody read through the Psalms and seen these before? People are just, I mean, it sounds like they are completely shattered and broken. They are because they're going through really tough stuff. But even in the end of that, it ends in a praise, which is a really great model for us to follow. And so these are really, uh, these are poems and songs of praise. That's kind of the overarching theme of what Psalms is. Um... There are several authors of the Psalms, um, and they were not all written at the same time. So just as the Bible is many books uh, by several different authors, the Psalms were written by different people facing different situations in different time periods. Uh, There is some debate, as there often is about books of the Bible, about authorship, uh, mostly among critical scholars. Uh, But the most widely accepted breakdown of authorship... um, According to the resources available in the Apologetic Study Bible, which I'm not sure if you guys have seen that before, I'd highly recommend it. It's a really good uh, research resource. But in there, they have that breakdown as follows. That Moses wrote Psalm 90, that David wrote 73 psalms, which if there's 150 total, 73 psalms is roughly half of them. So David is attributed to about half of the psalms. Uh, Psalms 50 and 73 through 83 came from Asaph or his descendants. Heman, or He-Man, depending on how you uh, pronounce it. I kind of like the second one. He-Man, the Ezraite, wrote uh, Psalm 88. Ethan, the Ezraite, wrote Psalm 89. And Solomon wrote Psalms 72 and 127. And the rest are anonymous. The Psalms, which are poetic and musical, you're going to find out as we go through this, they're also incredibly artistic, which makes sense. Uh, and that means that they are full of illustrative language and comparative language, and so we're going to see some of that. It's really beautiful. Um, many of the things written in the Psalms also have double meanings. So 
like the situations described, they were happening to the people then and relevant at that point, but they were also prophetic and pointing to the future. So sometimes people will get in an argument about, well, is this prophetic pointing forward or is this describing what was going on right then? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is both, um, which, which is really cool. So uh, Psalm 22, for example, is really rich with messianic references, as are many others. Uh, throughout the whole book. So also, I want to take a moment to clear up some confusion about how you refer to this book, okay? Uh, this can be uh, an argument among people who have nothing better to argue about, but the, the word psalms is plural, right? So if I'm referring to the book or a group of psalms, I would say psalms 83 through 93, or the book of psalms. If I'm referring to Psalm 1, which we're going to study tonight, then it is just a psalm, right? So sometimes people are confused about that. Uh, that's the way it works. So uh, we're going to work through Psalm, psalm 1 tonight. And um, based on the conviction produced in me by studying Psalm 1, I'm going to quote Psalm 1 to you. Okay, so you can look in your Bible or it should be on the screen and check me. But here we go. How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which produces its fruit in season, and its leaf will not wither. And everything he does, he'll prosper. For the wicked it is not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Remembering scripture is fun, isn't it? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows. <laughs> you guys got so nervous for me. I knew what it was. I just want to see if you think I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, though, I'm so convicted by Psalm 1 about remembering Scripture, honestly. But now I've totally messed up, so I'm supposed to be quoting you a book. So, okay. Um, so where am I at? I'll start, I'll start over. So really, this psalm is split into two, right? It's talking about what, the right, what happens with the righteous. Then there's a contrast about what goes on with the wicked, right? So he says, the wicked is not so. They're, they're like chaff that is driven away by the wind, right? And it says that, uh, towards the end, it says, God knows the way. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Deep words, a lot to go through here. It seems like a short little book, a short little comparison, but there's a whole lot that we're going to work through here, okay? So uh, let's start back at verse 1, and let's read what it says. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So first of all, we see here, uh, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, many see this, and I think there's something to it, as a progression of the effects of sin. Uh, you start out, so if, if you invert this, it's saying that the, the, how blessed is the man that doesn't do these things. So if you do these things, if you first walk in the counsel of the wicked, that's a lot of times how it starts. You're walking along, you're moving along, but you're starting to listen to voices. You're starting to listen to input from other places. And then before long, it's not that you're only taking those in, but that you're, you're, then you're stopping to listen. You're stopping and you're standing in the path of sinners. 
And you're not only listening to the counsel of the wicked, but you're starting to stand there and partake in what it is they're doing. And then the culmination, the coalescing of all of that is where it gets to the worst part, where you become a scorner. Where now you're not standing, you're not walking, you're sitting, arms folded, bitter, and scornful. Most of the time, your scorn being pointed at the people of God or God himself. And uh, this is something that those that walk with God and are righteous uh, don't get involved in. They don't even start at the beginning part. Here's a question, though, as we're working through that. So if, if step one is that a righteous man doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, how do we determine if counsel is godly or not? Right? That's, that's a fair question. How do we work through that? The answer is you have to run it through the grid of the word. But this also means we have to know what the word says. You're just starting to see why I'm convicted about how much scripture I have memorized. And uh, I'm hoping that all of us are by the end. Uh, so you can get ungodly counsel from all kinds of sources, right? It can come from outside of you. It can come from media. It can come from people who care about you, people that you don't even know. It could come from your boss. It could come from family. There's all kinds of voices externally that could come and give you ungodly counsel. Um, ungodly counsel would, would always be deception. It would also always be untruth, right? And so without the truth of the word, firmly planted in our hearts, how is it that we push back against the lies of ungodly counsel? We can't, um, and that's why we have to know the word. Uh, but it's not only outside sources that can give ungodly counsel, right? Sometimes you can give yourself ungodly counsel. There's this unfortunate sentiment that has been perpetuated or passed on. Um, I don't know where it came from, but you'll, you'll hear people often say, well, all you need to do is follow your heart. And that sounds really nice, doesn't it? Just follow your heart. Follow your heart, right? Bunnies and squirrels together and small baby deer prancing through the woods. We'll follow our heart. We might find a neat meadow full of flowers, and we'll follow our hearts to the end of the yellow brick road, and everything will be great. The problem with that is, um, if you knew the word, you would know that's not a good option. That following your heart is a hoax. Because in Jeremiah 17, we're told that your heart is deceitfully wicked, that it will lie to you, that it will lead you astray, that your emotions and, and the center of who you are has been corrupted by sin. And so sometimes the way you feel and the way you're thinking, well, those are my thoughts. Those are my feelings. How can I deceive myself? I, I mean, those of you that have been through it know it's possible. <laughs> you know that you've counseled yourself into a situation that hurt real bad. And normally when that happens, it ends up hurting someone else real bad too. You can't follow your heart. My question to you is, how do you assess ideas? Do you assess ideas? Is checking ideas in general, just whatever thoughts are coming in, into your, your brain or into your sphere of influence, do you, do you check thoughts uh, in general or counsel in particular? Do you check those against the truth of God's word? And is that your first inclination? When presented with a thought, with, when presented with counsel, advice, is running that through the grid of God's word. Do you instantly begin to think, if somebody says, you should do this and such, I don't care, whatever it is, is, is the first thing that happens for you that you start running through your understanding of God's word to see, does that conflict anywhere with what God has already said? Does that happen anywhere in the scope of how you make a decision? Is it the very first thing that happens? I think the premise that we'll dig out here is that it should be. If... If going to God's word to assess ideas and counsel is not your first inclination, 
then where is it? Where do you go? How do you assess ideas? If not, where do you go first to figure out if an idea is either truthful or fruitful? I would say that other people are a viable resource for assessing beliefs and ideas, godly people, um, but we should all know how to go to the word first and then bring in others for additional support or clarification. For some people, they honestly have, they've stayed stunted in their growth as Christians. They've stayed kind of babies in their faith because anytime, you know, maybe they have enough conviction to know I should at least assess ideas and counsel that I'm given. Praise God for that. I'm thankful for that. But maybe they've not learned how to get into the word of God and figure out for themselves, is what I'm receiving, is what I'm thinking, is this direction I'm thinking about heading, is it contrary to the loving truth that God has given me? They don't know how to go in and sort that out for themselves. They've not learned how to work through the word, how to understand the truth that's being uh, portrayed and given to us here. And so they, they instantly jump to finding somebody else to give them input. What's the problem with that? You ever ask two, two different people something about the same subject? How many opinions you normally get? Two. What's the one we really need? We need the Lord's. He's given it to us. And the Bible oftentimes doesn't deal in specifics, right? Uh, the Bible doesn't specifically tell you whether or not the first thing you do in the morning should be to jump onto Facebook or to open up his word and read it, right? There's no, you know, there's nowhere in Hebrews where it says, hey, guys, here's, here's, a, here's some wise counsel for you. Just skip Facebook first, jump into the word of God first thing in the morning, right? Why is that? Well, the word was written long before Facebook came along. It's hard for us, some of you to even imagine that there was a day, there was a time when Facebook didn't exist. It's true. It's true. Look, it's in books. Check it out. Um, so the Bible doesn't deal with that principally, does it? But it, or it doesn't deal with it specifically, does it? But principally, it absolutely does, right? Many, many times we are told that seeking God's word, but, well, and we're going to see it here. He meditates in God's word day and night. <laughs> Where's the gap there? That's all, that's all the time, isn't it? So the first thing I should be thinking when my eyes pop open is how thankful I am God gave me another day to be on mission, to be a part of this beautiful task of living life in light of the gospel and trying to share it with others. My hunger for his word should drive me to his word first, not my hunger for gossip driving me to the internet. Do I care if you get on Facebook? No, man. Get on there. Put on your scripture of the day. I know a lot of you use it as a tool for evangelism. Praise God. Do that. I'm not a Facebook hater. I do that too, but it's, it's where are we going first. Are you assessing ideas by jumping on Facebook? Well, I know this guy that's pretty wise. Let me jump on his profile, see if I can sort through what he would say about what I'm thinking. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's the best option. My great hope is that we would be so full of God's word that the minute, and that's the great hope, the minute that counsel comes our way, the minute an idea hits our frame, that, that we are able, whether we have a Bible in our hand or not, to be able to begin to run that through the grid of what it is God's word has already said. And then many times ideas false things would be thrown away, and it would, we would avoid a lot of pain. Now we're in verse 2. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the scripture that got me. So let me read you a couple more. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's the psalmist writing to God saying that his words to him are like honey. But he, 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 he's desperate for it, right? That he, there's a literal, a drive in him to get more of it. 
It's a good tasting thing to him. Proverbs 7.3 says this. It tells us to write the words and commands of God upon the tablet of our hearts. That we would write the words and commands of God upon the tablet of our hearts, right? So that's a reference to a lot of the way, in ancient times, the way things were written, right? We have, we have pen and paper, which has some level of durability for them, man, it was cuneiform tablets, and it was effort to write anything. There was a process of etching into that clay tablet something that was going to, I mean, it would stand the test of time. We still today uncover cuneiform tablets from 4,000 years ago. That happens, right? So um, there's, a, there's a reference to the difficulty of the process there, but also the durability uh, of what happens when you go through that process. And so the words and the commands of God should be written, etched out, upon the tablet of our heart. And so, my question to us, the question I had to assess in myself is, do I memorize scripture? To be totally honest with you, I think a lot of times in principle, if you ask me a question, principally I could give you, I could give you what the scripture says about that in idea form. But most of the time, I'm not able to quote for you either chapter and verse, or word for word, many times what the Word of God is saying. Writing the Word of God upon the tablet of your heart sounds more like the latter than the former to me. Now, I'm thrilled if you can lead somebody to the principles of Scripture at all. Like, that's, that's great. But I think the challenge to us here is to, is to take it a step further. Let me ask it this way. Let's think of this. You have to use your imagination a little bit. But what if we somehow lost access to the scriptures? What if something happened? And this is not unique in history. There has been times where because of persecution, because of crazy issues that have gone on, because of geopolitical situations, people have not had access to physical copies of the word of God. Well, I have the internet. Well, that, you know, <laughs> again, that wasn't always around. It could go away too. What? Yes, it's possible. So here's, here's just, however you have to f- get this scenario to work in your head, just imagine that you can't get access to a physical copy of the Word of God. Here's the question to me. Here's the question I had to ask myself. Here's the question I'm posing to you. How much then of the Word of God would you have to work with? With what you've got today, right at this moment. With what it is that's been written upon the tablet of your heart in a way that it cannot be erased. What today would you have to work with from God's Word? Well, you sound extreme. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Jesus was extreme. Serving him tends to be. And the call of God here is that we would meditate on his word day and night and that that these words and commands of his would be written upon the tablet of our heart. I think we should memorize scripture. I have a really hard time memorizing stuff. Honestly, I I do too. I, I don't know if you've figured it out yet, but I'm not the smartest guy around. Memorization doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. Um, but you know what? I found reading Psalms 1 enough. Did you catch that? Reading Psalm 1 enough. See, even I did it. The plural and the singular there, you get it messed up. So reading Psalm 1 enough times and thinking about it not just, here's part of what helped me to to memorize it. Not just thinking about the words, but thinking about what is this saying? What is the flow of thought? It's contrasting what the righteous does and what the wicked does. And so that as you're going through it, you're understanding what the, the flow of the thought of the writer. That's part of the point of memorizing scripture. And then also, I'm a, I'm a multi-sensory learner, many of you are too, so I also recorded on my phone the audio of me reading this psalm. And I, I mean, I don't know, I probably listened to it a hundred times. Um, but I'll tell you what, 
I believe it's written on my heart. I believe that for the rest of my life, you could ask me, what's Psalm 1 say? And I could reach down in there, and it doesn't matter how many storms of life come, doesn't matter how many raging seas or winds I go through, I don't think it's going to be brushed away. And I, I need to know this. I need to know what righteous people do, and I need, to know, I need to be reminded of what happens when you choose to be wicked. I need to know that. I need to know that it's really key that I be planted near streams of water and know where that water comes from. It's important. I would also ask you, do you meditate on God's word at any part of the day? Is God's word shaping and molding your perception of people that you meet and situations you encounter? We have to, in order to not be overtaken by our own sinful tendencies or bad counsel, ungodly counsel from outside of us, we have to run our reactions and emotions through the sovereign strainer of God's word. Because we are inundated every day with so many ideas, so many potential directions, so many options that if we don't have the word of God to strain away the things that are untrue and to leave us with what is pure and good and will benefit us and is fruitful for the kingdom, uh, then we will end up taking on things that are beneficial to neither, that will hurt us and will make us less effective for God's kingdom. Um, I had a situation recently that reminded me of this. Um, you, guys, you guys ever look down in your bathtub and there's, like a, uh, there's a metal crosshairs in there? Have you ever seen that? So if you look down in the bathtub drain, and maybe yours isn't, and that's a problem, so we'll talk about that in a second. But So you've got some crosshairs in there. That's to keep crazy stuff from going down the tub drain. So as most of you know, um, I not only pastor this church, but I'm also a general contractor. And so I found myself in the last couple of weeks in a situation where I showed up in this apartment and the bathtub was backed up. First of all, what I determined is those crosshairs were missing. There was no strainer. There was nothing that was keeping out stuff that could end up going in there, clogging up the thing, and causing a serious mess for everybody involved. And so I had to go in there, and I had to reach into the water that had been standing there for however long that contained whatever else was in it with my bare hand because I had to be able to feel what was going on in there. And um, I'll give you guys three guesses what my attitude was like. As I reach into that water. <laughs> Yay! Working for Jesus. Kingdom work. Yeah. In the dirty water. No. I was not happy at all. I was very upset that there was no strainer in the tub and that something had gone down there. And then, and then, it, and then it got worse because I couldn't, I couldn't reach it. So um, I had to go get a snake, which I hate running these things because you run them down there and then you pull them back and they're flopping around and the water hits you in the face and it just... Mm, it's so frustrating. I don't ever like doing it, but I, I didn't have an option. So I run this thing down there, and I pull out of the tub drain, mind you, a full-size human's sock. <laughs> a, a, and I'm, I'm sitting, and it comes out, and I can see it. It's wound up on the end of this snake, and now I'm going to have to touch that to get it off of there. And I'm like, this, it's a sock. We're in the bathroom, and I'm in the bathtub drain. Like, what, what's happening here? Here, what's going on, right? And so I'm like, I know the veins in my head are just about, to, and so I'm trying so hard not to explode. And um, the reality is that, if we don't have the truth acting as a strainer, sifting out the lies, we're going to end up with clogged up emotions, clogged up thoughts, and clogged up lives. And that creates a mess 
for our own lives and for anyone that's going to have to come in and try to help to clean that up. The truth keeps us free and keeps that stuff moving. This example, this beautiful illustration from my own life has a dual purpose because it actually, so it can kind of, it can illustrate for us the need to strain out ridiculous things, but it also <laughs> illustrates a, a place where I really had to check myself because I'm, I'm just going to be open and honest with you. I'm, you know, this was in the last couple of weeks, very frequent, um, and I'm going to tell you right now that I had to check myself and I was really tempted uh, and, and did think negative and degrading thoughts about the people that were responsible for the sock in the tub. And uh, that's really sinful. It was, it was really sinful that I began to believe that these people somehow had to be stupid. I mean, how do you get a, how do you get a sock down the tub, Drance? You know what I mean? Right? Don't, don't you judge me, okay? You didn't touch the water, all right? I'm repenting. Give me, give me grace here, all right? No, but I'm telling you the truth. Like, I was really struggling in my heart. I, I, wanted, I wanted to kind of, you know, I, I mean, I was tempted to go out there and, and, you know, say things to them that would let them know it's unbelievable in any universe for there to be socks in the tub drain and that they should never, ever let this happen again. And there might be something wrong with them because it did happen this time, right? But, um... <laughs> But it was an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and convict me and to remind me. Here's, so, here, so I'm telling you right now, that's what I was thinking. There's, a, there, there's some type of um, like just irresponsibility here or ignorance here. Something caused the sock in the tub drain, and that's a problem. And so I, I begin to project those things and my own sinful tendencies onto the people. When the reality is, I don't know. It could have been somebody's kid that did it. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that that could possibly happen. Maybe they don't have access to a washing machine and they're washing their clothes in the tub. I don't know. But here I am being a jerk, thinking bad thoughts about them, instead of understanding what the truth of the word says about them, that even though they are sock drain stuffers, right, that God loves them, that he made them, and he has a beautiful purpose for their life, and that if I'm in their apartment, that I should be trying to think about how to share the gospel with them, not thinking about how much I'd like to smack them in the back of the head because their laundry's down the tub drain. Right? Is that okay that I'm honest, and even though I'm you know, preaching the Bible, that I do have sinful tendencies still, God has to work on me. You guys okay with that? You know, sanctification's a process, right? Amen. Good. Yeah, that was fun. So, I got to learn lots of great things while running the sewer snake. Um, we can not only read the word as a hurried task to be accomplished, but we have, to, we have to chew on it and cherish it, and we have to meditate on it day and night, and we have to let it affect and change the way we think, speak, and act. If it's not doing that, if it's not coming and acting, actually making an effect and a change, in, you know, because I, I, know, I know for some of you, because I listen to some of you talk, you, you, the, the, the strainer is, is either got a big old hole in it, or it's just not, like your tub crosshairs are gone, and there's so many socks in the drain, like you just don't even think about what you're saying. You just let it pour out. This person's dumb. This person made me mad, whatever else. I mean, we, if you don't have the word of God, if you're, not, if you're not meditating on it, if it's not there, right, if it's not written upon the tablet of your heart, if you're not chewing on it and cherishing it and dealing with it, and if it's not creating a grid with which you perceive every person in every situation, then, then what is it doing? Then, then it's, it's religion and it's tradition and it's not that helpful. And, and this psalm doesn't let us get away with that. 
We're in verse 3. It says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Here, the righteous are compared to a tree that is strong, stable, and fruitful. And we have to key in on this and understand the point. This is not because the tree is special, but because it is planted near life-giving water. Understanding this keeps us from pride when blessings come. Right? Because sometimes there, there are people that equate blessings, whether they be material or, or whatever they consider that to be, to be kind of the sign of God's favor upon their life, and that can, in a weird way, begin to cause pride for them. We also have to know that the prosperity of the righteous, right? Because it says, and whatever he does prospers. This doesn't mean that somebody that serves God faithfully is going to have the Midas touch, right? They're cruising around in a Gucci suit, and everything they touch turns to gold, right? That's not what this is saying. We always, we always have to remember that when it says, in whatever he does, he prospers, that, that prosperity of the righteous, that that's on God's terms and by his definition. And we know that God works all things for the good of those that love him. That's Romans 8, right? And so just let's not get that twisted. Let's not, and, and we're going to work more on where the real emphasis is on, on the scripture there, but thankfully we do see that if we walk with Jesus, and if we are walking the path of a righteous person, that what that will equate us to is a tree that is firmly, that's a key word, planted by streams of water. So we won't be shaken, we won't be moved. Not only will the righteous produce fruit, but this is an interesting line, but their leaves won't wither. They produce fruit and their leaves won't wither. I believe this has two possible applications, and I think maybe both are accurate and true at the same time. I think, first of all, that God can and will sustain things in our life for the sake of our good and his glory. I would give you the example of the Israelites in the desert, right? For that time, God did a miracle. Their shoes didn't wear out. The stuff that they needed in order to follow him on mission did not wear out. I know that I've had stuff in my life that should have broke a long time. I'm just talking in a really carnal, physical sense. I believe there's things God has made work longer for me than they ever should have. Uh, because at that point in serving him, and doing what it was I was called to do, I didn't have the money to fix that. Now, some of you are like, well, whoopity-doo for you, buddy, because I got something that broke last week, and I don't have the money to fix it. Well, listen, this is not an airtight argument that you'll never have anything that breaks if you serve God, right? Sometimes you will, and sometimes it'll be for the sake of, you, of God leading you to a place of trusting him and finding out whether or not you have patience or not. Yay, thank you, Jesus, for doing things that are good for me, not by my definition. Yep, there you go. You guys are excited. Good. He will do that because he loves you, right? Um, but I do think that sometimes uh, even, even the stuff in our life, Jesus, and, and I think there's probably been things sustained in your life that you don't even know about, haven't even thought about. You're probably not even aware of ways God has diverted issues and problems away from you. Um, I just assume he's doing that all the time for us because um, this world is nuts, so. Uh, secondly, I, I think the way this applies is that the, the fruit of the righteous is eternal. So this not withering, I think, is an idea where, you know, you see that Jesus said for us not to build up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, 
uh, but we should store up treasures in heaven where they'll never have an issue. And so I would say, I mean, that's regarding the fruit, but even the beautiful and good things that adorn our lives, right? So the leaves kind of keep the tree pretty. I think the things that adorn the life of a Christian, like joy and peace and hope, those never, ever have to wither because we are planted firmly near the source of life and we draw our strength from him. Right, And so those, those things in the Christian life that kind of adorn and make, make, that should make Christians attractive to those around them. I don't mean in a physical sense, but the joy and the peace and the love, those, those leaves upon the tree of a righteous, fruit-bearing Christian, those things don't have to wither away on a situational basis. Because my strength isn't coming from being a tree. My strength's coming from being planted firmly near a source of living water that never dries up. He's the source of the power. And if that's the case, well, what if something hard happens? Well, I'm still connected to the source. My, my joy doesn't have to dry up. The peace in my heart doesn't have to dry up and wither. That's a beautiful promise, right? Said another way, go to Philippians. Maybe you didn't like that. Go to Philippians, starting around verse 4. It says, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, don't forget that one, make your request known to God. And then it says, the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you haven't rejoiced over that promise, it's because you don't understand what it's saying. Because if you really get what that promise is saying right there, your toe's going to start tapping, you're going to want to clap your hands. Because what it's saying is, you can have peace even when you don't get it. Let's do a poll. Is there anything in your life anywhere? I want you to go ahead and raise your hand. I realize it's a risk because there's people looking and, oh, it's scary. Okay, but let's do it. Do you have anything in your life right now that you don't totally understand how it's going to work out? Go ahead. Put your hand in the air if that's true for you. Yep. But what does the promise of God say in those verses? My, first of all, right here, my leaf doesn't have to wither. One of those leaves, I believe, is peace, right? Peace is different than comfort. That's two different things, right? I can be real agitated and in a tough spot, but still have peace. What's peace like? Peace is like when I lay down at night, my thoughts and my heart aren't racing because I'm so worried and vexed over what's going to happen. I fully trust that God is sovereign and big and powerful and loving and perfect in every one of his promises. And so my little eyes will flutter to sleep and I will have sweet sleep. And I'll wake up the next morning and I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to have peace. And, and that, that beautiful promise works itself out enough in our life. People that don't have that are going to notice and it's a, it's a leaf that adorns our life. It's a beautiful thing that should draw people in and open up doors for us to share with them. Hey, this isn't just because I have an you know, incredibly strong inner strength. This is because I'm connected to the source of life. I understand that Jesus is sovereign ruler and king over my life, that he loves me, and he's powerful enough to handle whatever I'm dealing with. This, this is where this peace comes from. And that leads us right into a gospel conversation, right? So it's beautiful. It's good. Leaves don't have to wither. Thank you, Jesus, that's true. So we, now we begin the contrast, right? Verse four, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Unlike a tree firmly planted with deep roots, the wicked will have lives that are blown away by the winds of difficulty. Without Christ as your cornerstone, this is a serious question. I think about it all the time, and, and this, it hurts me when I think about it. Without Christ as your cornerstone, how can you possibly stand in this life? How can you possibly stand in this life? There is a never-ending parade of personal and societal tragedies that without the gospel would drive any person to despair. It's, it's never-ending. 
Without Christ and his gospel, the only way to keep from crumbling in hopelessness is there's a couple ways you can do it. Either one, you can stay distracted enough with little temporary pleasures that you don't have time to think about the brokenness, right? So you can have Christ as cornerstone, draw strength from him, and that's how you deal with the difficulty. Or you can have a couple different coping mechanisms. The first one is say, stay so distracted with your little temporary pleasures that you don't even look to the right or the left into the plight of other people, and you're, you're so distracted by, by what you're doing and what you got going on your selfish pursuits that you don't even really see when jacked up stuff's happening in your own life because you're just single-focused tunnel vision on, I want to do the next thing that's going to make me feel like I'm having fun. That's one strategy. Some people are living that one. The other one is you can stay constantly stupefied by substances so as to avoid the harsh reality that a sober look at the world produces. Why are so many people addicted? Is it genetic? You know what? Maybe there's some factors in there. We live in a fallen world, and there's all kinds of ways that that affects us. But I think a lot of it has to do with an attempt at escape. This world is jacked up. There's a constant parade of personal and societal tragedies that if you're a thinking person that's aware of what's going on, it should totally crush you unless you can stand firm and be rooted deeply into soil that is kept watered and kept full of nutrients by a stream of water that is Christ. The analogy is deeper and more horrifying when you consider what I just said. The chaff that it's talking about that the wind drives away, it was the unwanted waste from grain. They would take grain and they would beat it out on a windy day, oftentimes on a hilltop, and the wind would take the chaff. That was the waste from the process. And the wicked are being <laughs> compared to that. This is horrifying. It is the unwanted waste from the grain, and it would be beat out into the wind, and it would blow away. Here's why. Because it was useless. A human life created by God with the potential for so much love and beauty and joy can be completely wasted by the senseless pursuit of vain and selfish fulfillment. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. I think this is really interesting language, um, and I believe what we're seeing here is that when the day comes, when each of us will stand before God to give an account, right? That's, some people are staying distracted various ways because they don't want to just think about that, period, right? But that day's going to come, and when each of us stands before God to give an account, the righteous will be able to bow our knees in worship, right? Because we know that every knee is going to bow. The Bible is very clear about that. One of the reactions to being in the presence of God is you're going to get down on your knees. And you're going to acknowledge who he is. I'm really thankful for that. But we'll be able to bow our knees in worship, those that have been made righteous in Christ. But then we will also be able to stand. And we will be able to hold our heads up, looking with unmatched affection at our Savior King and awaiting his pronouncement with confidence. Not only will we have to bow our knee, but we'll also be able to stand and look. We'll be able to meet his gaze on that day. Why? Because we're a really special tree? No. Because we were kept alive. Our righteousness is derived from that living water that we were planted by. Do trees plant themselves? No. Somebody plants them. God did all the work. 
those who have chosen to reject him, those who in pride thought themselves righteous apart from Christ because of their few deeds, they will face such shame and anguish on that day that they will be bowed down only, their heads hanging, unable to meet the gaze of the loving God that they despised and rejected. That's a heartbreaking thought. That someone will not be able to partake in the potential joy of being in God's presence. That for them, it'll only, it'll only be shame and anguish because they've rejected him. They will not stand in the judgment. They won't be able to. Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord has planned out a path of righteousness for each person. And that includes surrendering themselves to him through faith in Christ. Many will reject that path. And all of their works and all of their pursuits and they themselves will perish. This breaks the heart of God and it should break the hearts of his people as well. You should allow yourselves to think of how tragic it is that a life created by God for beauty and joy and relationship with him, that that life could be completely wasted on vain pursuits, that in the end will be like chaff driven away by the wind, complete waste and gone. God's not pleased by this, and we shouldn't be either. This is not a, this is not a psalm that you read and stand in indignation on the side, assuming that you're righteous. I'll be righteous. I'll be planted firm. I'll be sitting, in, I'll be sitting pretty. On the day of judgment, that'll be great for me. Yeah, get those wicked ones. This should break your heart. When it talks about the wicked, it shouldn't make you feel better about yourself. It should make you feel broken for them because that's how God's thinking about it. He takes no joy in the fact that this is true, that the deeds, the path, the way, and they themselves, all that has to do with the wicked, that it's going to perish. This is not a joyous thought for God the Father. It shouldn't be for us either. And this is why, these sobering thoughts, these very serious ideas, this is why we, like Jesus, have to be about the Father's business. This is why we have to be about the gospel. And what is that gospel? Well, the, the part, of, part of the bad news of the gospel is told here, right? That those that are wicked because they've rejected God, that they're going to perish. That's really bad news. You know, what is not very popular to say is that Absolutely everybody is in the wicked category without Jesus. Absolutely everybody has sinned. Absolutely everybody is imperfect. Everybody. Everybody before they surrender to Christ is in that wicked category. And all the scary things that is said about their life and about their eternity applies. That's really bad news. The good news is God didn't leave that as the only option. Because of his great love for us, he sent Christ to live a perfect life and then to die in our place for our sins. He didn't stay dead. He defeated death, made an open show of it, a mockery of death and sin because he rose from the grave three days later. Our faith is based on that beautiful truth, that gospel truth that Jesus came, died for us, and rose from the grave. And the Bible's very clear that what's, what's going to determine righteousness, whether you're a tree firmly planted by streams of water, or whether your chaff that is beat out and blows away in the wind is not going to have to do with how much good you do or how much bad you do or, or vice versa. It's going to have everything to do with can you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Can you believe the gospel? Can you trust 
in what the Bible says? Will you first accept the fact that your imperfection has separated you from God? Will you, will you accept that bad news? Or do you somehow believe that God owes everybody something? He owes us nothing. Our rejection is willful. It's amazing that he would lovingly be patient in waiting for any of us. <laughs> but he is. And the Bible's very clear. His desire is that every one of us would receive that beautiful invitation. That his desire is that we would sit down the things that cause distance between us and him, and we would receive him. We would embrace him. And the beautiful thing is the Bible tells us he'll embrace us. That only happens through Christ. That's the gospel. I've told you many times that um, all of the scriptures are, are about the gospel, that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus and his gospel, and that then we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That, that's given us the, the meat of the deal, man. That's the, the historical account of him coming and dying in our place and then rising again. And then Acts through Revelation is telling us how to live in light of the fact that he came and did what he did, right? So all of the scriptures is either looking forward to Christ, talking about him directly, or telling us how to live in light of the fact that he did what he did. All of the scriptures are about Jesus. And you might look at this and say, man, okay, so where's the gospel in Psalm 1? Let's find it. First of all... Um, I would say this to you. Let's look at uh, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Here's the first way I know that the gospel's in this, if we understand how all this really works. It is only by the indwelling of the Spirit, which is a result of salvation by grace through faith, it is only by the indwelling of the Spirit that we would delight in the law of the Lord. Why is that true? Because without the gospel... The law of the Lord is only an indictment. <laughs> Without the gospel, the law of the Lord is a terrifying thing. Without the gospel, the law of the Lord just, really, really what it does is shows us you're imperfect, and he's perfect, and now there's a gap. <laughs> Without the gospel, none of us are delighting in this law. None of us are meditating on it day and night, because all of us would just be terrified by that whole prospect. But because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did, we can look into this beautiful law and we can say, yes, we are imperfect, but he is perfect. And because of that, I am forgiven. I am accepted. I am affirmed. I am brought into the family of God. The gospel is the only thing that makes God's law something I can delight in. Other than that, it is only terrifying. And so I am thankful today that because of Christ and his finished work on the cross, the law for me is a beautiful thing. And really, the law here, it's, it's referring to all of God's word when it says that. It's not just talking about the Ten Commandments or the 613. It's talking about all, all of God's word is the delight of the righteous man. Those that have been saved by grace through faith, they begin to have this hunger and thirst for the word. The words of God for them are sustenance. Like daily bread. You don't have to, somebody that's been saved by grace through faith, somebody that realizes the depths of their wretchedness before Christ and, and, and realizes that they're taken from that to being called the very righteousness of God, somebody that grips that totally and understands that truth, you're not going to have to wrestle them to get them to want to be in the scriptures. It's going to be something they're going to be driven to like they are a good meal. Why do you go eat, man? Well, because I'm bored. That's because you're American. Don't think about that. Why does everybody else eat? <laughs> Because they're hungry. 
Why should we be reading God's word? Why should that be the thing that, that as soon as my eyes open up, I'm wanting, I'm wanting to delve into that? Because I, I should hunger for it. I should thirst for it. It should be a, a thing of affection for me, something that I'm, I'm drawn to. How is that possible? How is all of this not terrifying? How is it that I'm not in, in the descriptions, the tragic and, and terrifying descriptions of being like chaff for the wicked? Why is that not me? It's because of the gospel. It's only because of the gospel. This whole book is bad news if the gospel wasn't true. <laughs> but because of it, it's the best and most beautiful words in, in all of creation. Praise God. The other way we see the gospel in this is um, in the stark contrast. And I believe really this is the thrust of this entire psalm. It's the contrast between the tree and the chaff. It's the tree and the chaff. And, and, and we see the tree. We get the image of the tree. It's, it's planted firmly, right? And it's bringing fruit. And it's, its leaf doesn't wither. But that's not really the point of that verse. The point of that verse is that there's a tree and it's planted firmly. But it, the whole point is, where, what is it planted near? Streams of water, right? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? He said, you, you're looking for the wrong water, sister. I can give you water that you'll drink and what? Never thirst again. The water referenced here, the water that's going to cause a tree to have leaves that never wither, and, 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 and a tree that produces fruit exactly when it's supposed to. The only kind of water that does that is living water. It's the kind of water that flows from the very essence and nature of Christ himself. In this, we see the difference. We see that it's not the tree in and of itself. It's not the good works of the tree. It's not the fruit of the tree. Would the tree have any fruit if it wasn't planted next to that water? What? No! Man, it's the water. That's the point. And the water is Christ. And that's the only thing that keeps that tree from being the chaff. And in that, we see the beauty of the gospel. Somebody could read this psalm without a gospel perspective and see a works-based righteousness. Because here, it's a contrast. The righteous person does this. They don't walk, right, in the counsel of the wicked. They don't sit, right, in the seat of the scornful. They don't stand in the path of the sinner. You can see all that, okay, 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 well, I'll do, not do those things, okay, and then I'll be the tree, and then I won't be like the wicked person. Right? They can miss the whole point, man. It's not about the fact that you're a tree. The only, the only reason you're a, a tree that produces fruit that's got pretty leaves that aren't withering is because you're planted next to water, an ever-flowing fount of water that in it has salvation and joy and peace and affirmation and security and relationship with God himself. All the nutrients and everything you need to be a tree that produces fruit in its season comes from that water. Who are you planted next to? Where's your counsel coming from? It's all, gotta be, it's all got to do with Christ. If it isn't for that, if, it, if you're not planted near that stream of water, which is Christ, you're going to be chaff, blown away, driven away by the wind. And words like perish will apply to you. I'm so thankful the gospel is in Psalm 1. And uh, <laughs> I'm really excited that as we go through this, my, my, my great hope and what I'm excited to do with you is see the gospel in Psalm 2 and 3 4 and 5 and every other place we look because that's the point of all of this. Guys, do you understand why people reject God oftentimes? Oftentimes they don't know that. 
We have to get better at showing people the gospel throughout the whole book. They think the Old Testament is about a cranky God that's weird and does weird stuff and sends fire from heaven, and they see this weird dichotomy that between the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They don't see that lining up. They don't understand how the pieces go together. That's part of why we have to meditate in this law day and night. That's why we have to have it engraved upon our hearts in a way that it can't be wiped away so that when we have those few precious, beautiful opportunities to share with somebody the good news, that when they have questions because their understanding of the Scripture is blocked by untruths and, and missing pieces, that we can take those and lovingly guide them through it and show them, man, I don't care if you're in Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you can jump over to Joshua, you can look in Ezra, we can jump in Psalms, we can go to Proverbs. Where do you want to go? I can show you Christ in there. Because it's always and always, always has been and always will be about him. It's the whole point, it's about Jesus, because we have to point their focus about the whole deal to what it's really focused on, right? There's all these auxiliary things people get messed up about, man. Here's, here's the point of the Bible. God loves us. He made us. We decided to flip him and the bird instead of enjoying that beautiful thing, right? We didn't want that relationship. I want to do something else. That fruit looks good. And then he loved us so much that he went through all the... That's what the rest of the thing is recording, all the trouble God's gone through to have us. Why, how could you reject that if you understand what it really is? What are you upset at God about? The problem was our fault. <laughs> he did all the solution and the, and the problem solving. He, he endured all the pain to pay the price. What are you rejecting God for? What are you rejecting Christ for? He loves you. <laughs> he wants to make you a tree firmly planted by streams of water. He wants you to have leaves that don't wither and produce fruit in your season. He wants joy and peace for you in eternity with him. That's God's desire for you. Please, why? Why? Why would you not want that? May we be a people who are full of the wise counsel of God's word and who have it written upon the tablet of our hearts. May we be a people who are stable and fruitful because we are close to the source of living water. And may we be a people who are humbly broken by the plight of those who have chosen wickedness. And may we spend ourselves in the mission of sharing the truth of the gospel with them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We are thankful, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful that in every place that we look, we see, we see your redemptive plan. We see all the way through, from Genesis through Revelation. We see the fact that you, the very creative act was you loving us. And we see the fact that us rejecting you didn't make you stop loving us and that you committed from that point on to pursue us. We also see, Lord, that it's very clear you won't make us. You won't make us love you. I think that's because you being the God who is love, you have determined that forced love is no love at all. And so that opens us up for heartbreak. That opens us up for difficulty. That opens us up for the tragedy of people choosing to reject you. Lord, I know, I know that those that reject you ending up being unrighteous, being, being labeled as wicked, being, being like chaff that is beat out into the wind and driven away and ends up their whole life being useless and for nothing, that this is not a light thing. God, may this not be something that, that escapes our conscience. May we at all times be aware of who's around us, what's going on. This, may we be better. May we have more sensitivity to the spiritual temperature around us of people and 
And when we walk into situations, God, may we be driven by compassion the way that you are. Lord God, may we be a people. Please help us by your Holy Spirit. We, we need help. Lord, our attention spans, they're, they're getting worse. We're, we're not as good at memorizing things even as our ancestors were, God, but we need your help in this because we have a strong desire. We want the truth of your word to be written upon the tablet of our heart and in, in a, a way that it cannot be erased, Lord. I want it to be true of me that I could, I could have much of your scripture available even if, if the beautiful written copies of your scripture that I have were ripped away from me. Lord, I, I want to be able to I want to be able to minister out of what it is that by your Holy Spirit has been transcribed upon the tablet of my heart. God, I ask that right now by your Holy Spirit, you would, um, you would just push away the thought that anybody might have that that's something reserved for those that are called to the ministry or some deceptive language like that. God, may we, every single one of us understand that to, to know you and to partake in the righteousness that comes from salvation because of grace through faith, is instantly to be drawn into the ministry of reconciliation, that all of us are called to the ministry, and thus all of us are called to meditate on your word day and night, that all of us are called to have the beautiful truth of your word written upon the tablet of our hearts. God, may we do better at knowing and cherishing your word, at chewing on it, Lord, at meditating on it. God, we ask that the truth of your word, that it would, it would affect the way we assess every person we meet and every situation we go into. Lord, help us. Sometimes it's hard to determine whether counsel is godly. Lord, may we, may we learn how to be still and quiet and hear your voice, to be led by your spirit. And God, may we learn how to go to your word and to figure out is this way, is this idea, is this path, is this counsel, is this godly? Or am I going to find myself walking in the counsel of the wicked? Thank you, Lord, that you've promised to bless us. Thank you, Lord, that you've promised to bring good things to us. Lord, help us to be humble enough to understand that good things is determined by you, that you define what's good, that sometimes what's good for us is to walk through difficulty while you hold our hands that we can be built up and strengthened and made more like you. I thank you, Lord, that you're perfect and holy. You're always true. You're faithful. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.